Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, beginning with the 29th verse. It is our custom at Kings to stand for the reading of scripture. If you are able, please stand and read with me. And immediately, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. If uh, we were in church, I would show the children my Kindle, and I would ask them what happens if I don't charge my Kindle. And because kids today have phones and tablets, they would say, well, it wouldn't work. And I would say that we have a spiritual battery the same way that the Kindle has an electrical battery. And that if we don't plug in to the Spirit of God, then we will not be able to do the Spirit's work. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Have you ever noticed on a Sunday morning when the piano isn't playing or the preacher or the deacons aren't speaking and the singers aren't singing and there's silence that we all look around? We, we get uncomfortable with the silence in church because somebody should be doing something. I actually worked at a church where the pastor had a stopwatch, and he had a time in his pastoral prayer every Sunday for silent confession. And his goal was to slowly increase the amount of silence with which his parishioners would become comfortable. At first, it was only 10 seconds, and then 15, and then 20. And you could tell when the people were beginning to get uncomfortable with the silence because you would begin to hear mints unwrap. And you would begin to hear checks being written for the offering and bulletins being shuffled. But after several years, he got his congregation little by little comfortable with over 30 seconds of silence. Silence today means somebody is not doing what they're supposed to do. We don't like silence. 
Some people don't like silence because the guilt and the hurt from their past speaks to them. Some people don't like silence because the Spirit of God speaks to them. Some people don't like silence because silence means things aren't getting done. In fact, Carl Jung in his personality theory talks about two types of people, extroverts and introverts. Extroverts are people who gather personal strength, he would say, from being with people. If you go to a party with family and friends and the longer the party goes on, you have more energy and more excitement and more happiness, you're probably an extrovert. If you go to a party and the longer you're there, it drains your energy and you get tired or you're probably an introvert. Now, here's the spiritual challenge for extroverts and introverts. An extrovert has trouble setting aside time for God. Because that time means they would be alone except for God. And they need those people for their personal strength. The challenge for an extrovert is to make the time to be with God. Now, an introvert has exactly the opposite challenge. An introvert is a person who gathers personal strength from being alone. And their challenge in this discussion is to leave that safe place of solitude and go out and do ministry with people. Jesus preached in the synagogue in Capernaum. He healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He healed many who came to the door of the house where he was staying. He cast out demons. And he knew something that every pastor today knows, that ministry is exhausting. Ministry takes time. It takes money. It takes training. It takes study. It takes energy. It takes spiritual strength. It takes physical strength. It takes preparation. It, it, it involves frustration. And sometimes there's a poor success ratio. You invest and you vest and invest. And people don't give their hearts to Jesus. Jesus knew how difficult it was to do ministry. And I want to say that this sermon is not just for pastors and deacons. Because we all do ministry. Whether or not we think of it that way, each of us in their own life does ministry. They share their time and their talents and their heart and hopefully the heart of God with those around them. So Jesus demonstrates what ministry looks like and then he demonstrates how we can stay strong in this exhausting thing called ministry. We're going to talk about setting time aside and we're going to talk about setting yourself aside. Many new Christians say, I, I just feel guilty. I cannot set aside the time for God. I want to, but other things get in the way. Joyce Myers was asked, how do you uh, keep your priorities straight? And she answered, I straighten them out all the time. 
See, getting your priorities straight is not a one-and-done event. Priorities are always changing and sifting. It's what Stephen calls Stephen Covey calls the uh, battle between the urgent and the best. Jesus asks us to put the urgent aside and focus on the best, to set aside time. Now, the concept of setting something aside in the Bible is the concept of holiness. So Jesus is asking us by his actions to set aside time with God, to make that time holy, and to set ourselves aside with God because God calls us to be holy. Uh, I guess a good play on words is God wants us to be holy with a W, holy with an H. Jesus got up early in the morning and he set aside time and himself for God. When I was a kid, we used to have what was called the midwinter retreat. And we were told not to bring anything that would distract us from the word of God, the word of God being spoken and the word of God being heard. We weren't allowed to bring radios or cassette players. I know, I'm dating myself. There were no TVs at the retreat. We usually had worship in the morning and Sunday school and lessons and a speaker at night. And we totally set aside ourselves and that time for God. And great and mighty spiritual things happened. So if there's something that Jesus says to us by his actions, the first thing he says is this. Set aside holy time for God and set aside yourself to be with God. Maybe we need to uh, think of it this way. When we are alone, we're not alone at work, and we're not alone on the phone, and we're not alone when we're online or on our tablet, and we're not alone when we're writing or waiting a return text. You're not alone when you're watching TV. You're not alone when you're listening to the news. You are alone when you really intentionally cut off from the outside influences. Actual aloneness is about as available as imported glacier water. That holy time comes at a very high price. But Jesus demonstrates, and we are called to set ourselves and that time aside. Jesus also used what I like to call his GPS, his God's positioning system. Jesus was the word of God. Jesus knew the word of God. Jesus set aside time with God so that he could hear the heart of God and see himself in the purpose and plan of God. Prayer does not change God. I want you to hear that. We often think that we can pray and change the will and the work of God, and that's not how prayer works. If you spend time in prayer, God changes you. 
You know, sometimes I say we should make t-shirts. One would say, you are worth what God paid for you. Well, maybe we should make t-shirts that say this. Before you pray, you can do nothing. And there's nothing you can do, you can't do, after you pray. A little boy and his dad were going for a walk. And they came upon this large stone, not quite a boulder, but a big stone. And the little boy looked at his dad and he said, Dad, if I used all my strength, do you think I could move that rock? His father said, yes, son, I believe you could. And the little boy rolled up his sleeves and he started pushing and pushing and he used all his strength to push that rock and push and push and push. And finally, he slumped down on the ground, exhausted. He said, Dad, I thought you said I could move that rock. And he said, Son, you didn't use all your strength. The little boy said, Sure, I did. And the dad said, No, you didn't ask me. See, Jesus is demonstrating for us that he didn't do it all on his own. He had to ask his heavenly father for strength and wisdom and direction. He used his GPS, his God's positioning system. Finally, and I want you to hear this, Jesus talked with God. I I enjoy visiting other churches or other Bible studies, and you can tell a lot about a person by the way they pray. And there's some people who believe that they need to use King James English. O thou almighty God, we, thy humble people, come before thee and kneel at thy throne. God doesn't care about the quality of the language you use. He wants to hear your voice. He wants to know your heart. He wants to know that you're willing to listen. We'll get to that again in a moment. And then you go to the church where perhaps a deacon or a Sunday school teacher says, are there any prayer requests? And everybody makes a laundry list. This one has cancer. This one has COVID. This one lost their job. This one broke their leg. This one's seeking direction for this and that. And the deacon or the pastor, the Sunday school teacher opens in prayer and then just reads the laundry list. These are all the things we want for you, Lord. And we might finish with, if they're in your will. But the expectation is that God is in heaven hearing our requests and that if we toss them up to heaven, well, then he's going to do them. That's not a conversation. That's a monologue. And then there are the people. uh, These perhaps annoy me more than others and, and I don't want to name any names, but they're the people that insert the name of God every other sentence. You've heard these people pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us, Father God, and help us, Father God, as we seek your will for our hearts, Father God. And all I can think of when I listen to this prayer is how many times I don't say Vicky's name in the course of a day. I don't roll over in the morning and say, Good morning, Vicky, my favorite wife, Vicky. What would you like to do today, Vicky? 
What would you like for breakfast, Vicky? Would you like to help me with this? Would you, Vicky? Would you, Vicky? Would you, Vicky? That would drive her up a tree. We have a relationship. Now, yes, there are times when I hold her in my arms and I say, I love you, Vicky. Or, Vicky, I love you. But it is not a repetitive saying of her name over and over and over. Vicky's name should never become a filler in our conversations. So then what are we looking for? Well, we're looking for the conversation that a young boy had with God. The young boy's name was Samuel. And as you remember, he lived in the temple with Eli. And God called to him. And Samuel ran to Eli and woke him up and said, what do you want? And Eli said, I didn't call you. And the end of the story is, Eli teaches Samuel to say, speak, Lord, your servant listens. Well, my mom was teaching a Sunday school class many, many years ago, and she taught this lesson and she encouraged the little children, seven or eight years old, after they prayed to listen. And when my mother closed the prayer, they all looked up with those expectant eyes and she said, did God say anything? And one little boy with eyes wide open said, God said, thank you for listening. We need to become comfortable with the silence. So Corey Ten Boone says that prayer should be a compass, not a life preserver, that we should pray to God to find what direction we're going, not, pardon me, not not to get us out of trouble when we didn't listen to where God sent us. I might have misspoke. I I think she said a steering wheel and not a life preserver, but the, the idea is the same. We should pray for God's direction, not only when we misdirect ourselves and need God's help. It's sort of circular reasoning. If we know the will of God, God says when we pray, he will answer our prayers. Why? Because we're praying in the will of God. Well, how do you know the will of God? Because you spent time in prayer. So here are some self-diagnostic questions. When do you pray? Is prayer your steering wheel or is it your life preserver? Why do you pray? Do you pray to let God know what's going on with you, what you need? Or do you pray to hear from God? How do you pray? Do you throw up so many words and flowery language and repeat the name of God over and over and over? Or do you pray with an open and contrite heart? For what do you pray? Do you pray for the easy things, for family and friends? Do you spend time thanking God? Do you spend time asking God what he would change? What areas in which he would like you to grow? And perhaps the most difficult self-diagnostic question to answer about prayer is this. Are your prayers being answered? I'd like to close with this thought. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that we need to pray without ceasing. And I I love this because the King James 
translators made sure that it was very polite, their translation. But the, the Greek word is a dialepos. And what it means, literally, is a hacking cough. Paul literally writes to the Thessalonians, pray as if you had a hacking cough. It's also a word used for repeated military attacks. Well, I want you to hear what Paul is saying. Let's do it this way. Have you ever been in a meeting or in church where you had to cough and you tried to hold it in? How successful were you? I know that I've tried to hold in a cough or a sneeze and it never works out well for me. Well, that's what Paul's talking about. A cough becomes an involuntary response to everything in our lives. It becomes a part of us. It's what Bill Bright in Campus Crusade called spiritual breathing. He said that his prayers, he took in the good from God and he expelled the sinfulness of himself and that this became a constant, all the time activity like a hacking cough or a repeated military action. And I want you to hear that Paul is using a word that is both reflexive and offensive. I want you to hear that. Reflexive in that it's going to happen involuntarily. If you pray enough, you will involuntarily burst into prayer in your heart. And the other thing is that it's offensive. It's relentless. Prayer is how we chart our course, and successfully manage our ministry. I hope this lesson has helped you focus on your prayer life. And one of the reasons we looked at this passage today is because the covenant that we shared last week, uh, 98 people, not people have agreed to pray for our church family 98 times a week. 98 times this week, if people kept their covenant, God was, our church and our church family were lifted up to God. But we can't just lift us up. We have to listen for God's direction. If you've never made a decision for Christ, if you've never taken the opportunity to ask Jesus into your heart as your Lord and personal Savior, we encourage you to talk to your pastor or to contact our church by email, and we would love to pray and talk with you about that. If you want to commit to prayer, make sure that you set aside that holy time and willingly set yourself aside for that time. As always, if you need help with a challenge or a prayer request, the King's Prayer line is on Facebook, and we would love to talk and pray with you. Amen.